Friends, there's a world of difference between an opinion and reality. It was some years ago now, and I forget whether it was for my birthday or for Christmas, but my wife, Becca, bought me a present which she was really pleased about. She repeatedly told me how great it was. And I was intrigued because um, Becca doesn't normally uh, buy me presents. It's, it's actually, present giving is not really one of our, our love languages. Um, at Christmas, we normally ask each other, what do you want for Christmas? Do you want anything? Um, we normally say, no, can't think of anything particular. And then we decide, should we go quits and not bother to get each other a present? Um, but the fact that she had gone on and on about this present meant that I was really quite excited about it when it came to open it. And I, when I opened it and saw what it was, I don't think I hid my disappointment very well. It turned out to be a single string pocket kite. And my disappointment did live when we kind of took it out to try it out. It didn't really work unless there was a kind of force 10 gale. And even then, it didn't do anything. It was a single string, so it just kind of fluttered in the air, stationary. There's a world of difference between opinion and reality. And that's not just so when it comes to things like presents and holidays. It also applies to people. Some people may be self-aware, so actually there is quite a good correlation between the opinion of themselves and reality. But for others, well, there's a bit of a mismatch. In fact, it's actually one of the ways that counselling can be actually helpful to some people because it sometimes enables some people to see realities about themselves of which they were totally unaware. There is a world of difference between opinion and reality. It's the reason why we sometimes make a mess of relationships. Because we relate to people on the basis of our opinion of them and of ourselves. And when that is not the reality, well, then we can get relationships wrong. For instance, I love the story. It's a true story of what happened when a rather forceful mother took her son up to university for the first time. They arrived at the, the, the college where he was attending to discover that his room was right at the top of a long flight of stairs. The student had quite a lot of uh, luggage, and so the mother looked for, uh, around for somebody to help uh, carry the stuff up the stairs to give them a hand. So it happened that a kind of rather fit-looking older man was uh, passing by at the bottom of the staircase, and so she commandeered him, thinking he was one of the college porters to help carry the bags up the stairs, and the, the, the man obliged. Three days later, during a freshers' week, the student arrived at a drinks party hosted by the head of the college. And it was only then that he realised his horror that uh, the man his mother had commandeered was the master of the college, the Reverend Professor Sir Owen Chadwick. Uh, would the mother have commandeered the master of the college, <laughs> some was attending, if she recognised who he was. I doubt it. See, there's a world of difference between opinion and reality. And it affects how we relate to people. 
And that is particularly the case when it comes to relating to Jesus. Now, not everybody has heard yet about Jesus, but most people in this country have heard something about him and have formed an opinion about him. I certainly imagine that all of us here this evening will have a a view, an opinion about Jesus. And that opinion determines how we relate to him. Now, in the short passage that we had, Mark 8, verses 27 to 30, we come across a number of people expressing their opinions about Jesus. For those uh, who are visitors here this evening, let me give, explain a bit of the context. Mark, in his account of Jesus' life, basically splits his gospel into two halves. The first half focuses on the question, who is Jesus? Whereas the second half focuses on what he's come to do and the response he calls for. Anyway, in the first half of his gospel, Mark has been giving us evidence of who Jesus is by recounting some of the amazing miracles he did, like that one we heard about, uh, just read earlier, the calming of the storm. Mark also records a, a number of conversations Jesus had which also give a clue to his identity. By the way, can I say, if any of us are uh, not familiar with uh, uh, Jesus, can I encourage you, please, to pick up one of the accounts of his life? We've got all four of them, Matthew, Mark, the four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We've got copies at at the back over at the Connect Corner. Do just go and pick one up and read it for yourself so that you may have a a clearer opinion, a more accurate opinion of who Jesus is. So in the first eight chapters, Mark has given us, I suppose, the selected highlights of the first two years of Jesus' public ministry. And as well as recounting some of the amazing things that Jesus said and did, he also records people's response to Jesus. So crowds flocked to hear Jesus speak. They bring their sick for him to heal. But the religious leaders are put out. Jesus hangs out with disreputable, godless people. And he doesn't seem to abide by their religious traditions. Anyway, by the time we get to chapter 8, verse 27, we've come to the climax of the first half of Mark's Gospel. So Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, It's a town about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is in kind of non-Jewish Gentile territory. And in that context, he asks his disciples the question, who do people say that I am? This is the first time Jesus has ever specifically asked his disciples about, or asked anybody about people's opinion of him. And it's a really good question for us to ask and answer. Who do people say that Jesus is today? Who do people say that Jesus is? Well, according to a YouGov poll conducted in 2020, 15% in this country think that Jesus is an entirely fictional character. A further 41% think that although he might be a historical figure, We can't trust any of these gospel records about him. 
And a further 13% don't know what they think. So according to this poll, two-thirds of this population, and it was a a large survey done throughout the country, so two-thirds of the population either don't think Jesus existed or is someone we can have an informed opinion about. In other words, Jesus is not someone they need to engage with at all. And that is the majority opinion in our generation. This is a reminder to us of what a, how much of a post-Christian society uh, we have become. But when Jesus asked his disciples that question, they gave a very clear and definite answer. Verse 28, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now we know from earlier in Mark's Gospel, those weren't the only opinions about Jesus. In chapter 3, we read how the religious leaders who come down from Jerusalem to check Jesus out conclude that Jesus actually was possessed by the devil. They declared, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. But clearly that wasn't the majority view of those who encountered Jesus or had heard about him. Some thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Others that he was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And others thought that although Jesus wasn't Elijah, he was like one of those great Old Testament prophets who declared God's word to God's people, calling them back into a relationship with God. Now, what do we notice about those opinions? Well, the first, they aren't all the same. I mean, different people had different takes on who Jesus is. Second, they were all respectful. John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets were all held in high esteem. And then third, they all thought Jesus was speaking truth about God. John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets were all recognized as faithful messengers from God amongst the populace. And friends, there are many people who will still hold similar views about Jesus today. Muslims do. And even some who call themselves Christian hold that this view of Jesus that yes, he is, he's a great, he's a great teacher. He's a religious uh, genius who, who, who spoke truth and shows us a right way to live. But Jesus clearly doesn't think those, uh, uh, those opinions equate with the reality of who he is. Because he then puts his disciples on the spot. And he asks these men who've been with him constantly these last over two years to give their verdict on who he is. Verse 19, but what about you, he asked. Who do you, sorry, verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, well, before we look at Peter's answer, (laughs) I want to suggest that that's a very good question for each of us to be asking. Who do you personally think Jesus is? 
Forget what your parents or other family members or friends, colleagues, fellow students, members of your life group think. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And how are you currently relating to him? Friends, this is a question God will not allow us to dodge. He calls on each of us to personally make and that's an active public decision. That is what Sarul, Tim, Saket and Charlotte have done this evening by being baptised. But even for those of us who have already been baptised, who do you say Jesus is? And how are you relating to him? See, anyway, Jesus asked that question to the disciples standing in front of him, and Peter speaks for all of them when he replies, You are the Messiah. Now, I think for us that word Messiah has many kind of modern connotations, which actually can make things kind of difficult for us. So for some, when we hear that word, we automatically think of a, a famous piece of choral music. For others, it's of a, a sort of heroic saviour figure. Phil Keane was telling me that um, uh, when Kevin Keegan returned to Newcastle Football Club, his nickname was the Messiah. For still others, it's a psychological disorder. He or she has a Messiah complex. Here are people who think they have to fix everything, and that's problematic not only for, for them, but also for everyone else. But for a Jew steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures to declare Jesus to be the Messiah, well, was to declare Jesus to be the absolute ruler and king over the whole universe. It's to recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to rescue humanity and to restore peace and harmony to creation. For Peter to declare Jesus to be the Christ is to recognize that Jesus isn't just one of the prophets. Nay, he's the one about whom the prophets spoke. So attend a carol service this Christmas season and the chances are you'll hear this reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his king, kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And Peter recognizes Jesus to be that divine figure. And friends, the question is, do we? Do we? And are we relating to him as such? See, if we do recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, 
the Christ, the Anointed One. By the way, all those titles mean exactly the same thing. They're interchangeable. But if we know Jesus to, to be that figure, the Messiah, the Christ, then two things will follow. First, we will follow him and do whatever he asks. Will you look down the, the page will you, to verse 34? Just down that page, left-hand column. Then he called the crowd uh, uh, to him, that's Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I won't spend much time on this because this is the passage we're going to be looking at uh, next week. Do come back. But I just want you to notice that if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, well, then we must give way to him. See, if he is God's absolute ruler of the universe, well, then he must be ruler of me. I can't be king of my life. He must be. He must start calling the shots. And because Jesus is the Messiah, there are consequences if we refuse to submit to him. Look a bit further down to verse uh, 38, where Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Friends, Jesus is not a a figment of imagination, nor is he a, a relic in history. He is alive and active, reigning at the right hand of God. And in verse 38, Jesus declares, using another title of himself, the Son of Man, that he will return one day with all the glory of God. And on that day, when he returns to draw the curtain on human history, he will be ashamed of all those who are ashamed of him. So that's the first consequence of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. We will follow him. We will obey him. We will submit to his loving rule. The second consequence of recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah is that we will love him. We will adore him. So if you look back to the end of our passage, to verse 30, you'll see that after uh, Peter has declared Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone about who he is. Why is that? I mean, surely the whole world needs to know and recognize who Jesus is. And the answer why uh, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone about him lies in verses 31 to 33. Again, I won't go into that now because we're going to be looking at those verses next week. But the point is, at this stage, Peter and the other disciples don't understand 
just what sort of Messiah Jesus is. They don't understand that the reason why Jesus came and took on human flesh 2,000 years ago was so that he might die a criminal's death on a cross. You see, Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the one who has come to fulfill God's purposes, the one who's come to rescue humanity and to restore creation, well, he will do that by paying the penalty for our sin in our place. He experienced the righteous anger of God as he hung on a cross so that we might never have to experience that if we recognize who he is and will trust him and follow him. And when we realize that and accept that for ourselves, well, we will love Jesus from the bottom of our hearts. See, Christians follow Jesus not out of duty, but out of love and gratitude for what he's done for us. There is a world of difference between opinion and reality. For those of us who've been thinking that Jesus is someone we can choose to ignore, well, you're, of course, entitled to your opinion. You can continue to disregard Jesus and keep him at arm's length. But friends, please do not confuse opinion with reality. Jesus is not a figment of people's vivid imagination. He is God's Messiah who has entered human history. Jesus was born, died, rose again, and he can personally be known today. And if you're someone who is still unsure about that, can I encourage you, please do further exploring. So read one of the accounts of Jesus' life. doesn't matter which one, just go up and pick up one of them from the, the gospel. We've been looking at Mark's gospel, which is the shortest. Pick that one up. Come on one of our Explored courses in the new year. We run Explore courses, giving people an opportunity to explore the Christian faith without any pressure being put on them regularly on Monday nights throughout the year. We'll have a new course starting early uh, in January next year. But please don't think that you can get away with simply ignoring him. And then for those of us who are convinced Christians, I know Jesus to be the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. Again, there is a world of difference between opinion and reality. We may confidently declare Jesus to be the Christ, God's anointed King. But are we living each day as if he is our King? Denying ourselves and following him out of overflowing love because we realize who he is and what he's done for us.